Hey everyone, welcome to Reformed Podmatics, hosted by the pastors of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. It's Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey, and this podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond. All right, everybody, welcome back to Reformed Podmatics. This is Pastor Zach. And Pastor Mark. And today we're going to be getting into what is possibly one of the most uh, helpful and interesting conversations I think we can possibly have in our current moment as we record here today at September 11th, uh, 2020. And looking back on the last few months, it's been a wild ride for everyone. Yeah. Uh, if you live in America and you don't live under a rock, you know that not only are we going through this very difficult coronavirus pandemic, but we are also living through uh, one of the greatest cultural shifts probably to happen in many of our lifetimes uh, with the Black Lives Matter movement, starting really with the death of George Floyd back in May, um, but with others as well, Breonna Taylor uh, and Ahmaud Arbery, and now that seems like there's always names being added to this list uh, in the in the last few months. And so today we wanted to really take a second to to sit and respond as pastors to this movement happening and unfolding uh, before us. Uh, it's been a very interesting time, to say the least, watching all the news on on both sides of the political divide and trying to respond to this as pastors hasn't always been easy. And so we thought that this would be a helpful format to address it in this podcast and to sit back and, and get into this, mm-hmm. maybe not uh, answering every question that could be asked, but uh, hopefully getting into it from what the Bible says and how we can uh, live in this moment as Christians in a way that is faithful to God's Word above all. Yeah, there was certainly a time in evangelical culture where dealing with anything in the political world was (laughs) discouraged, you know, that pastors shouldn't talk politics, and, and so we've we live downstream from that, and I think the result of that is many people not knowing exactly what the Bible would say about these kinds of things, what pastors think about mm-hmm. things like protests and racial injustice and um, a lot of the things that are being thrown out on the news media. Um, there certainly was a time where the pastor was essentially told to shut up and preach the Bible, mm-hmm. but... Um, I think that we've seen that the fruit of that approach is not healthy fruit, but that Definitely people not. really are hungering for some knowledge, some grounding in how do we interpret these upsetting and concerning things in our culture. Yeah, and so it's it's good to address these from yeah. the Bible. As we, as we look to the scriptures, there's a lot of things that we can learn that will be absolutely essential for how we address these serious problems taking place in our nation, in our society, our culture at large, uh, from God's Word. That's that's the hope. And so as we go through this episode, we're going to be walking through a list of five questions um, and sort of attacking them one by one. And the first question that that we want to ask is, what is the biblical vision for the races and for racial justice and peace? the biblical vision for ethnicity Hmm. would have to, of course, start with creation and say that God made man and woman in his image. And I think that's been said a lot and established quite well throughout this whole past several months. And so we would, we certainly believe that and confirm it and we want to repeat it now, but we're going to go a little bit beyond that and look a little bit (laughs) into some other scripture texts that are going to be helpful, hopefully, as we think about what what it means to be, that, that there are different ethnicities in the world. Um, one of the texts that actually jumps to mind would be the Tower of Babel story, 
And so yeah. you have there the people of the world becoming prideful mm-hmm. and God destroying their pride by dividing them yeah. and uh, giving them different languages. And so underneath that should probably be the the lesson that we should not be too proud as people assuming hmm. that we could reach the status of God, that we could um, elevate ourselves up to the level of God and one way that God has stopped that from happening is to divide people one from another with different languages. Uh, that's mm. one thing that pops to mind, of course. That's quite reversed, you might say, through the Pentecost event where people from various nations of the world are gathered in one place in yeah. Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit is poured out in their languages to the people who are gathered uh, hearing the apostles preaching and so in the church, that division is undone and unity mm-hmm. is restored among people of different languages, different ethnicities, different backgrounds. Yeah, so if we going back to the Old Testament, to the very beginning, um, God chooses a specific people then after this division at Babel, um, or Babel, however you want to say it. Uh, and he chooses this people called, of course, the Israelites, the Hebrews, the, the Jewish nation as we know it today. Yeah. And he, he calls a particular man, he calls Abraham and says, through you I will bless the nations. And so right from the very beginning of God covenanting with this people, uh, we have a mission in mind for this this. Uh, whole blessing of God, the, 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 covenant. the covenant of God to extend far beyond just one particular people group. Mm-hmm. And it was going to be through this nation of, of priests uh, who were going to take it, to, take it global. Mm-hmm. And it was going to not just uh, be their people group, but that it was but through them they were going to be a blessing to the nations. And so this is always the hope, and we see glimpses of it throughout the New Testament, or the Old Testament, excuse mm-hmm, me. Mm-hmm. Um, one example of this would be Jonah when he's told yeah. to go to Nineveh, and he doesn't want to. He has, uh, let's just say, negative feelings in his heart <laughs> toward, towards these people, these foreigners, uh, and almost wishes God's judgment upon them. Yeah, there's no way God could save the Nineveh, right. is what Jonah thinks. They're yeah. these evil people, you know, they're uncircumcised. But God calls him to go anyway, and actually we see that they repent, and and Jonah is sort of uh, at a loss for words because of it. Hmm. Uh, And and this this we see also in the prophets, uh, this this plan to extend God's grace far beyond this particular people. And so in the New Testament, this is of course picked up, this is called the mystery of the gospel uh, in Paul's writings. Uh, I think of Ephesians 3, for example, Paul talks about how now this mystery has been revealed and made known that the grace of God is being extended even to Gentiles, to non-Jews, and it's going out far beyond this this people group. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then we see in the early church, even right after the scriptures are written, the apostles, according to tradition, go off to far and distant lands Mm -hmm. and, and begin to plant churches. And so right from the very beginning of the, the movement of Christ, for the Jesus movement, the Christian faith, we see uh, many different ethnic and people groups brought into the church, and it was never meant to be one, one group. And so the vision here, of course, is that there's going to be racial harmony, and, and it's going to happen through the blood of Christ. Um, and so what are some other verses we yeah. can think of that... that get to this point. Well, we have an Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah 60, and um, if you know the flow of the book of Isaiah, you know that it's mostly targeted to the people of Judah, but really towards the end, the expansiveness of Isaiah's prophecy really expands out into the nations and the world. And so in Isaiah 60, you have Isaiah saying, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. And he's saying this to Israel, See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. And so Isaiah is recognizing there is sin and darkness and confusion and foolishness in the world. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you, Israel. 
and nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. And so there is mm. what you would say hospitality involved in yeah. being the people of God that having the gospel, having God's message um, will will necessarily require that we be hospitable to all different kinds of people that God calls into his family, that all the kind, all different kinds of people that he adopts. And so you see there in Isaiah 60 that God wants to gather from the nations uh, people, a people for himself. We see this also in the New Testament yeah. when foreigners are, or in the Old Testament again, when foreigners are welcomed into the covenant community sure. and told to be taken care of and to be given privileges. Yeah, just in my sermon this past week, I talked about that, where you have uh, Moses' wife, Zipporah, mm-hmm. being a Cushite woman. You have Rahab, of course, the resident of Jericho, being in the line of Christ. Yeah. Um, and uh, other people in the Old Testament who are grafted in, even in the story of David and Bathsheba, the the virtuous man in that story is Uriah the Hittite. And so um, people from other nations being grafted in was already certainly happening in the Old Testament, but through Christ, it happens at a much more, at a much greater rate, certainly, than you would say is happening yeah. in the Old Testament. Yeah, this, as I said, Ephesians really gets at this. Ephesians 3, as I said, is about the mystery of the gospel, God's grace being revealed to the Gentiles. But right before that, in Ephesians 2, after the famous passage about being saved by grace through faith, and this isn't your own doing, so that no man may boast, following that passage comes another passage tying right into this about justification and about how through Christ all people groups are reconciled, particularly Jews and Gentiles. But I think that this applies also between various Gentile people groups, tribes, and nations. And so I'm going to read Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, which says this, For he himself, that is Christ, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And so Christ has effectively broken down the the dividing wall of hostility between all people groups, Mm -hmm. and his blood is sufficient to cover all peoples. Um, yeah, and I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about that idea is that Jesus Christ is not only the mediator between us and God, he is the mediator between hmm. people. Yeah, And so that's uh, great. you could think of it in a triangular kind of way where you need Christ always um, interceding for you um, at the right hand of the Father, but we also need Jesus Christ to keep hmm. his, his death his resurrection, which covers our sin at the forefront of our minds so that we might forgive mm. our neighbor, so that we might live in harmony with other people that are around us. Yeah, and of course, the major doctrine in all of this is then union with Christ. Yeah, Through union with Christ, we have fellowship with, with God the Father, and through union with Christ, we have fellowship with one another. We are united as a single body to our covenant head, and so that brings fellowship between all peoples. And so this is also very clearly stated in Galatians 3.28, famously used to defend all kinds of interesting <laughs> theological agendas. Um, but it, it says this, and, and it applies very well to this discussion. Mm-hmm. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so in Christ we are one, we are united. And I think then looking towards the end of the picture in the New Testament, we come to Revelation 5, where we see a glimpse of what the the worship of the church will look like in in heaven, in in harmony with God and with each other. Mm -hmm. And it says this, and they sang a new song. These are the saints in heaven. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe Mm -hmm. and language and people and nation. And so this should 
cause every Christian to take heart in the midst of these difficult mm-hmm. conversations that it may not always look pretty on the ground how racial justice and harmony is coming together, but we should take heart knowing that it will take yeah. place and that one day we will be perfectly at peace with one another and with our God. Yeah, and may God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, right? And so that's that picture of heaven shows us what we should be working towards in large part in the world, in our own lives. And so the biblical vision for uh, ethnicity is that we would value, of course, every people, every tribe, every nation, every language in the world, Hmm. and um, we would desire that people would not just come to the Lord, would not just be born again in the spiritual sense, but that we would also have that horizontal reconciliation as well, Mm -hmm. Um, of course, so perfectly symbolized and so perfectly realized in communion, (laughs) where we celebrate the sacrament not just with God, um, which is sort of more of the evangelical Zwinglian approach, actually, to communion, yeah. which you can start to see the breakdown there yeah. into some of the Take it demands on own, for reconciliation. Pray by yourself. Yeah, and if if it's just between you and God in communion, then you don't have the requirement to be reconciled to your neighbor yeah. so that you might yeah. participate in the sacrament in a way that doesn't bring judgment on yourself. Right. And so um, certainly the effort should be there to be a peacemaker, a uh, person who values different perspectives, different um, approaches, different experiences of the kingdom of God from not just uh, our our background, which both Hmm. of us are white American, not (laughs) just white American as the normative experience of the kingdom of God, but that there are many people through the various tribes and nations of the world who are experiencing God's kingdom in powerful ways, and we can learn from that. Yeah, amen. Yeah. So the goal, I think, is then to start to work to becoming what we will be, Yeah, knowing that it is certain that it will happen, and so we can take heart in knowing that. So that's the first question, I think, covering what is the biblical vision of the races and racial justice and peace. Now, let's move on to our sort of the second sort of subject, the second question that we have. What are some of the benefits now, looking back to the past few months and what's been going on in our country? Uh, what if, what are some of the benefits that have come about uh, in in the Black Lives Matter movement, the protests, and and so on that we've seen? One of the benefits is that. People are being honest about their pain, and that is that can be a good thing. Um, of course, it's not a good thing if it leads to destruction, but it can be a good thing if it helps people to see, you know, and let's just be honest, if it helps white people to see the pain of the mm-hmm. black community. And so that is a difficult thing that many black people are enduring now because they have seen a video of a black man being killed in Ahmaud Arbery and in George Floyd, these two videos, Hmm. um, certainly would bring up memories of Rodney King getting beaten senseless Hmm. um, in the street in Los Angeles. And, um, And so these are painful things which are so sad and it is essential that people would be able to communicate that they're feeling this pain. And so in that sense, it has been good for uh, people who are maybe detached from the black community to see more in the public eye this pain that that they are experiencing. It's good for us to work, Mm -hmm. to do the hard work of empathy and sympathy yeah. Um, mostly sympathy, I would guess in this case, um, mm-hmm. that this is the experience and these are the feelings of people in our nation that have trickled down through the generations. After slavery was ended, there was segregation. After segregation was ended, um, there were certainly other various issues that black people have faced. And um, these people dying... Uh, Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd 
have caused a lot of those that pain to come to the surface. And hopefully there can be some healthy grief and even some change that needs to happen. Yeah, so it has brought awareness um, at the very least. And that that is a good thing. That is a for sure net gain, I think. Uh, and it has caused people outside of the black community, in particular white people, but not just white people, to feel the pain that is being felt mm-hmm. and to uh, come to grips with it in a way that maybe they haven't come to grips with it before. And so in this sense, there's compassion that's being learned, hopefully, through all of this. And r- rarely is compassion a bad thing. I think you could, there is such a thing as having maybe too much compassion and letting that crowd out other thoughts that need to mm-hmm. come into play in different scenarios. But but here it's good, I think, mm-hmm. to have compassion, to listen to the cries and the tears of others. Um, and as James tells us in James 1, to be slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to become angry. Yeah. And, and being able to be like Christ, who had compassion on the crowds, for they were a sheep without a shepherd. That, that, that sort of thought, um, that, is, that is for sure a benefit of what's come in this movement, having to grapple with it. Um, and it has brought it to the fore, and that, that is a good thing. And maybe another positive that has come from it is the very evident hunger for answers, and not just answers in the temporary sense, but in the spiritual sense. So seeing people hungry for answers and being honest about that hunger and thirst for what do we do with injustice, what do we do with pain, what do we do with grief, and even on the side of white people, what do we do with there being unrest and division in our country? Hmm. A lot of people are getting moved out of a comfortable comfortable experience and into having to ask big questions and seek big answers, which is a good thing that we are moved towards that search. Um, Mm -hmm. We can medicate our pain um, quite often, which maybe a lot of people have been doing over the last several years with so much affluence and getting whatever we need, uh, being comfortable, and COVID has kind of Mm. been a pressure cooker for uh, people's need for answers in the most general sense of what is the meaning of life and how can I face death and what if I get sick? And so I'm going to need some answers to those questions. Mm -hmm. And this would, these, this racial unrest would cause people to say, well, what are our answers to the plight of people around Mm -hmm. us who are really struggling, seeing, um, seeing a fellow black person killed on video? Um, one another thing that I've learned a lot in this is the the unity of the black community is something that a lot of white people don't quite understand. I would say, yeah. And I I was talking about this with another person right after George Floyd had died, and that person really couldn't understand why it mattered so much to say a black person living in Los Angeles that this guy died in Minneapolis. And I think that that was mostly the result of a honestly kind of a more white understanding of the individual mm-hmm. in America. We just do our thing and you do your thing, Zach. I do my yeah. thing. We get along through life and where we interact, we should be nice to each other, but yeah. you got your background. I got my background and I'm going to go and do my career and it's a very individualistic Yeah, you're approach. afforded of individualism when you're given certain privileges, right? And when you, as a white person, you know, you don't have to think about what happens to other white people. Right. That's that's on them, you know? <laughs> well, um, it, that's more even an American ethic too, of a very individualistic way of thinking. And that is, the black community is very woven together. Right. Um, Similar, I'm a part of this subculture of the Dutch community, <laughs> and um, I feel some sense of pride that Wayne Heisinger owned the Miami Dolphins, <laughs> and that every once in a while some Dutch person will do something 
impressive yeah, right. in culture. And that's just a small example. Mm-hmm. But um, you see that a lot, of course, also in the black community where people support one another. And um, you have figures like Tyler Perry and Oprah mm-hmm. and uh, Beyonce who do sort of big cultural things. And there's so much pride yeah. in that. And also then there's so much pain when a black man is being murdered on film. And so yeah. uh, there, there's a deep sense of connection that I have woken up to quite a bit. Hmm. And uh, it, it's it's kind of challenged my my personal attitude of individualism. Yeah, when whenever there are people who suffer common pains or they share a pain, it, it naturally brings them together. I, I remember many years ago actually being at a Rob Bell speaking conference um, which I was very excited about. This would have been, I don't know, 2009 at the time. And he had everybody in the audience stand up if they owned a Volkswagen. And so mm-hmm. the few Volkswagen owners stood up and pointed at each other like, woohoo, hey, Volkswagen people. <laughs> and he said, sit down. And then he said, stand up if you've had somebody you loved die of cancer. Mm-hmm. And so the whole room changed, obviously. And people stood up. And they saw each other. And they didn't know these people. They did not know one another. But they shared a common pain. And he said, now notice the unity that this brings, sharing a common pain. Mm -hmm. And you know what? I'm not a huge fan of Rob Bell now, but (laughs) I think that that was a profound message, a profound uh, illustration. And so you can imagine being a minority people group in in a country with a history such as ours, uh, and you would you can see then why there would be such a tightly woven community. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, there is that shared pain um, of certainly the history of the black community. And uh, during these last several months, I think a lot of people have been woken up to that. Now, the next mm-hmm. question that we want to address is actually. I've yeah. hinted at it a little bit already, <laughs> and it's a question that I have not heard asked in any other forum, but is one that I think bears some discussion. And that's the question is, what role do vid- does video play in the pain that is being experienced by the black community? Um, and how does the fact that all these things are being filmed change hmm. the public's perception? And I think that this is so huge. And, yeah, definitely. Uh, at, I was watching a forum discussion to prepare for this where some black women were discussing the George Floyd issue. And as a part of the discussion, they watched a few minutes of George Floyd being choked with a knee in his back. And um, so they're watching a man die. They're watching it happen on video. And... We cannot downplay the impact of watching a person die. I think that Mm. we hide death away so much in our culture in putting older people in retirement homes and or they die in a hospital, whereas in almost every generation before probably the 1920s, people would have died in their homes and would have had a family around them and it would have been Mm. not a common thing, but a normal experience of life to yeah. see grandma oh, yeah. to see grandma die mm-hmm. and um, to see my sibling who got really sick to see them dying and we don't even like to use the word die anymore yeah. we used to like to use euphemisms to sort of pretty it up right and so death death. the fact that so few people encounter death have now seen a video yeah. of a young man getting shot in the street um, Ahmad Aubrey and a man getting suffocated on a curb of a street has really um, caused this visceral reaction that should be understandable. Um, and I, as we were getting ready to uh, to do this talk, I, I can't help but think of how video has confirmed the experience that um, many black people have been saying they have been having Hmm. over the past several generations. Uh, we can contrast that, I think, maybe on a, a lighter note for a moment, with hmm. the fact that over the past several years, there have been far fewer UFO sightings. 
now I'm going to have a point to bringing that up. <laughs> and, um, and part of the reason for that is that people now demand video or photographic evidence of a sighting in order mm. for it to be confirmed. And recognizing that I'm going to need a video in order to convince people that I've seen this thing, people have stopped claiming that they've been seeing UFOs. Um, <laughs> not completely, of course, but there's a new mentality where if there's no if there's no photo, if there's no video, then it probably didn't happen. As they say in, in the, among the young kids these days, pick or it didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And uh, and so that is very true of UFO sightings, and UFO sightings have gone way, way down since people have been literally walking around with cameras over the last... It was 2007 that the iPhone was introduced, and hmm. since then, UFO sightings have gone way down. Now, um, we can contrast that with the fact that there are these videos of um, of people getting attacked, getting hurt, um, certainly on on both sides of the conversation. There are videos that show how difficult a police officer's job is, and mm -hmm. so a body cam can show this is an immensely complicated job that a yeah. police officer is doing. But there are also those videos that show. Um, some particularly the Ahmad Arbery video where he is hunted down in a street and yeah. shot yeah. while he's going Sick. for a run. And so that video confirms that the experience is real. And so I, I, that hasn't really been brought up, but I think that it's important to recognize this is a different kind of conversation than some of the uh, other conversations maybe in, in decades past hmm. where it could be easily dismissed because, well, that's your interpretation. <laughs> well, now there's so much photographic and video evidence of these things that yeah. there is confirmation that um, that there's violence yeah. happening against there people. There is truth to a lot of it. That's, yeah. And that's becoming impossible to deny. Not to say that a video of something proves everything. Sure. It often doesn't show every detail. Every video starts and stops at a certain point. Yeah, that's um, a good so it's hard to know what happens before, what happens after. Uh, but it has brought it into everybody's minds, and you can't once you see it, you can't unsee it, mm -hmm. and it changes the the course of the of the um, ongoing conversation that we're all having. Yeah, and so that does um, lead into maybe the next question a little bit that what are our thoughts and comments good mm. or bad on this Black Lives Matter movement and now we're yeah. narrowing down a little bit to Black Lives Matter proper instead of just the general issue of dealing with racial um, mm. division in our country um, how how do we perceive Black Lives Matter this is a big question that mm. I know a lot of young people would have uh, can a Christian get right on board with the current cultural zeitgeist that is Black Lives Matter. Hmm. Um, certainly older people as well would be wondering the same kinds of things. And so what are your general thoughts, Zach? How would you uh, <laughs> respond to somebody saying, what do you think about Black Lives Matter? First, I would like to say that I'm okay with the phrase Black Lives Matter. I don't have any issue saying it. Uh, Black Lives indeed matter they matter just as much as as anyone else and so i don't have any problem uttering those words and i'm not going to just clap back and say all lives matter uh, that's to to very much miss the point i think um but beyond the phrase black lives matter when we dig into the organization for example of Black Lives Matter, we find some things that conflict and contradict with the gospel very, very much. Now, it's interesting that I, I, I do think the the general movement, maybe not the actual official members of the organization, but the movement um, aims at doing what the Bible uh, gives the, the vision of, of the scriptures for mm -hmm. biblical unity, which we've seen now mm -hmm. already. And so there's definitely a common aim. And and so in some ways, I'm, I'm sympathetic to Black Lives Matter. I think that, yes, there are, of course, problems in our country, in our culture, that need to be addressed, and we need to work towards 
human flourishing for all people. Racism is real. Racism is real. Yeah. It it lives in the hearts of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it needs to be addressed. And we too are seeking for uh, racial harmony yeah. and racial harmony that blesses all colors of people. And so I, I feel in, in my soul a deep uh, sympathy for Black Lives Matter, but when I look into the the movement proper, say maybe the, the people who are officially tied to the organization Black Lives Matter, uh, I have deep, deep uh, feelings of disagreement uh, mm. with with it. And a lot of this comes down to the fact that I think Black Lives Matter has tied itself to a deeper theory of of uh, change of change and, yeah, and yeah. revolution, which yeah. really is quite clearly, and not just to use this as a scare word, but it's clearly Marxist. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that it's also tied to what we call critical theory or critical race theory, which sort of pins people into different identity groups and pits them against one another. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that this is really destructive and mm-hmm. antithetical to the gospel uh, because once you fit into your, your race group, that is who you are. You are a black person and you are a white person. You are uh, maybe a female or a male. You are yeah. gay or straight. You're transgendered. You're cisgendered. Uh, and that's all we need to know about you. And it becomes about power imbalances. Yeah. And so, therefore, the way towards equality is by tipping the scales and by flipping power, by writing, you, you write wrongs by. Uh, by reversing power structures, putting people who are once sort of on top of the pyramid on the bottom, and, yeah. and so on. Yeah. And so I think that this is deeply uh, twisted, I, I, will, I will say, yeah. um, and goes against what the scriptures teach. Yeah, Marxism, uh, and again, we want to deal with this from the f- perspective of philosophical Marxism. I don't know if Black Lives Matter is officially advocating of any political Marxism yeah. in terms of uh, changing our country into a communist nation or something <laughs> along those lines. But but uh, Karl Marx was primarily a philosopher who um, who presented this problem and solution. He said the problem of humanity is power imbalance. The bourgeoisie exploits the proletariat. Hmm. And the solution, therefore, is forced equality. And... Um, I don't think his, and, and the way to that equality through Lenin and Castro and Che Guevara was mm-hmm. revolution, and Mao as well, of course. So the, the large yeah. proponents of Marxism in the 20th century were revolutionary figures, and um, that approach fits quite well with the underlying ideology, which rejects that there could be a reconciliation between the bourgeoisie and proletariat. Um, mm. Because that is the Christian message that we seek reconciliation. Yeah. Um, I, I, I heard um, one person actually say, we seek conciliation because we were, hmm. um, we've, we've never been quite uh, in a healthy relationship with yeah. one another. And so, <laughs> so we're not going back to we, it. We, we desire to be. Um, united with one another. And that is the Christian vision. So where the Marxist will say the fundamental problem is power imbalance and the solution is forced equality, or really, honestly, the Marxist would say the solution is my power Mm -hmm. coming uh, at the expense of the people who are currently in power. It's not really equality. That's in what it says in name, but it it's like what you said. It's just a reversing of power structure. Mm -hmm. We need a new bourgeoisie and yeah. we want the current bourgeoisie to become proletariat. Um, whereas the Christian will say, no, the fundamental problem of humanity is sin, and the solution is Jesus Christ. Um, first of all, it's a much more accessible and immediate solution mm-hmm. that somebody could experience and have, so it's a better solution in that sense. It doesn't require uh, uh, the whole system of uh, politics and law enforcement and all of these things to change in order for me to experience peace and mm-hmm. joy and hope in the world. Um, but beyond that, we would say um, 
a reconciled person it has the, now the mind of Christ. It can discern spiritual things and then therefore should seek to do good mm-hmm. in the world and love your neighbor as yourself by political engagement and um, caring for other people around us. And so it is both a better individual and a better corporate solution that the church, that Christianity offers than Marxism, which is kind of fundamentally a, it's kind of a zero-sum game where hmm. those who uh, those who are up high now need to just be brought low. Yeah, um, and and we don't really have a message of hope for them. They're mm-hmm. just gotta go. Yeah, that's a lot of what you hear. Actually, there's not much forgiveness for them. Yeah, there's no grace in Marxism, and there grace is a fundamental principle in the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. And I know that people could respond to that and say, oh. Grace is just a way of going easy on people who are doing really evil things in positions of power. Mm. And it is true that grace can be manipulated to be too quick to forgive people who have done really bad things. However, the Christian has to hold on to the the call to forgive, um, the call to be reconciled to Christ and be his ambassadors of reconciliation towards the people around us as well. So um, hmm. that is that is my big concern with the Black Lives Matter movement is that it it doesn't it doesn't preach Christ. Um, and so one hmm. should be very uh, should hold very loosely any organization, whether that is uh, yeah. the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, Black Lives Matter, um, uh, association with a Masonic Lodge, Hmm. um, all of these different organizations that they don't really exist to preach Christ. And so we should hold that far more loosely, our identity Mm -hmm. in those things, than we do our identity in Christ, being a Christian, being born again, um, following him and living according to the word of God. Yeah, some of the things you just said remind me of, of things that I've thought before in regards to Marxism and to critical race theory, that I think at root, what we're dealing with here is not merely just socio-political theories, but actually a sort of religion oh, absolutely. with its own theology. Yeah. John McWhorter and Glenn Lowry talk a lot of, they're two black intellectuals, hmm. talk so much about the religion of social justice right yeah. now. Yeah. And it's something that people really get passionate about. You see that they're sort of religious zeal. These people may be checking none when they're asked, what religion are you? None. I'm no religion, they'll say. Yeah. But very clearly, it, it works in their lives the same way a religion would work. So Christianity is often uh, broken down to four major uh, movements of the drama. Now, there's maybe people who would disagree with this, but it's often presented as creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And I think what we see in critical race theory and in Marxism, uh, a similar flow. There's creation. There's some sort of creation story, how the world came into being. It was the Big Bang, maybe, or whatever theory that you want to subscribe to. And it was there 13 billion years ago, the whole, the whole universe. And then humans came around and humans fell into sin by creating power imbalances between uh, different identity groups, whether that's men or women, whether that's uh, different skin colors taking power over others, and that was the fall. And so the great evil is power imbalance, Mm -hmm. and that's what needs to be overcome. So how do you overcome that? Well, now the answer seems to be becoming woke, uh, which is... It strangely sounds a lot like uh, evangelicalism's uh, phrase "born again," which is not really evangelicalism; <laughs> it's the like Bibles. Yeah. But it, there's there's definitely a parallel here, I think, between becoming woke, becoming awakened or alert to all of these matters, and seeing the world through the the lens of wokeness. Um, and so it sort of is like regeneration in the Christian mm. uh, religion or faith. Um, and then, the, but there's also an ultimate vision or a utopian vision uh, for what racial peace will look like, and this is often seen to be such a all-encompassing vision that it justifies any sort of behavior towards this goal. Um, so any sort of even what we would normally consider evil or wrong or uh, 
or malicious behavior would be totally justified if it yeah. if it brings in the the ultimate goal of this utopian vision of of all the wrongs of of whiteness being undone or of yeah, masculinity there's a lot of justifying or whatever. of rioting for example right yeah um, because i've seen quite a bit on social media well that's how we have to get people's attention we have to wreck their stuff mm-hmm. and so there's less of a ethic a systematic systematic ethic of righteousness and more of an ends justify the means yeah. approach yeah yeah absolutely and maybe maybe an additional concern that i have with the black lives matter as it's presented and how i've seen it now this may not be always what uh, the official party line may say but as it's understood and as it's presented i perceive it as a very gnostic approach hmm. so like what do you what mean you by said that? About, you said you talked about wokeness, and hmm. just about everything that I've heard has said the solution for uh, just about everybody is to get educated. Oh, yeah. yeah. And is to fill your mind with better thoughts. And there's a real lack in what I've seen of a call to particular action. Hmm. And, and the Gnostic. This is in, from the first century all the way to today. Gnosticism is always going to be present. Gnosticism, by the way, is the idea that um, the physical world is necessarily evil and tainted. The spiritual world that is gnosis, that is the knowledge you could gain of that world, mm-hmm. is better and good and pure. And so... You have to get that secret um, knowledge. We just need to get that knowledge. Yeah. We need to get the right ideas, and then we'll be happy... And we can transcend into the yeah, spiritual. The, the, the call is to transcend. It isn't really to bless the world, but it is to sort of transcend out of the world yeah. through wisdom and knowledge. And so I see a lot of that in the calls to action, so to speak, that I've, mm-hmm. that I've noticed for Black Lives Matter. And that is, um, well, less of an emphasis on going to do something that would be practical and helpful to a black person or a police officer uh, and more of an emphasis on get woke. Mm-hmm. And then that's, your, that's a solution that will somehow trickle out into bringing uh, solutions into the world. Now, it is good to have better knowledge and it's good mm-hmm. to, ha- to read books from black authors and mm-hmm. um, to understand more of the black experience in America. But... It seems to me that's pretty much always where it stops. It's just this gnosis will mm-hmm. be gained and then you'll be better. Well, in in my sort of structure that I've built for how uh, socialistic or Marxism sort of appears to be a religion, you could almost say that the state and really the education system becomes the place, it takes the place of the church. It and is the, the sanctifying foreground. Yeah. It takes the place of the family too. The state is the family. Yeah. Um, and so... If we we just so in the Christian worldview or Christian faith, the church is what guides Christians through their lives uh, into yeah. into holiness. Of course, this happens not just because of the church, but because of the the Spirit of God. Yeah, the Word of God. But yeah. it is that community through which education comes and sanctification comes and, and action and action. Yeah. Where and, and then in the, in the sort of secular framework it is schools, public schools. And this is why you see a lot of anger and vitriol about public schools, uh, about, we'll say, uh, DeVos. Is yeah, Nancy, Betsy DeVos. Betsy DeVos, yeah. uh, when, when she became the, 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 the chair of the Department of Education, sure. um, or whatever her title Secretary is. Of Secretary of Education. Of Education. Yeah. Uh, it was such a big thing because it was almost like their church was being in, infiltrated. That's, yeah. that's at least how I, yeah. I read it sometimes. But going back to yeah, yeah. Black Lives Matter... Um, well, maybe could I add one thing about the Gnostic? Uh, yeah, sure. And that is that we see racism as a problem and the solutions offered by this Gnostic woke approach are not good solutions to the problem that we see as real of racism. Hmm. And so that's maybe the overarching concern that I have with Black Lives Matter is that it is addressing a real problem. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. But it is not going to be doing so in the best way, a Christian way, 
um, a holistic way of blessing all those who, uh, white people, black people, Latino, um, all those people who participate in the movement. And so that that's what I would say is, is my hmm. great concern, is that it's recognizing a real issue, but yeah. it, it's not going to lead us in the, in the real solution that God would prescribe for that problem. And that's why it's so attractive to people, sure. I think. So when I think of Black Lives Matter people, there's really the true believers... Then there's those who are taking advantage of the movement towards their own political ends and agendas, which we, we see a lot with Antifa yeah. and the destruction. Angry that people happens. who want to participate in uh, expression of anger in public. Yeah. yeah. And then the third group, which is the vast, vast majority of, of supporters, are just sort of the everyday do gooders who see, yeah, this is a real problem. And why would I not want to get behind this movement? Yeah. And so it's sort of. Uh, they t- sort of bite onto it hook, line, and sinker and often just go with it, not knowing maybe all of the deeper uh, philosophies or theories that are at work and at play mm-hmm. in in this grand mm-hmm. movement taking place, this shift happening. Uh, and so w- one of the other questions, which actually is not on our list, but it has come to mind as I've been thinking, is why do we think we see so much protest and rioting and destruction, violence, uh, you know, burning things down, breaking into buildings, uh, and so on. Why, why are we seeing this happening at such a large scale here in mm-hmm. 2020? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with that. It's not coincidence that this has happened on the heels of the, the lockdown, the national right. lockdown, yeah. because people had... Uh, pressure on them, financial pressure because of losing jobs, um, pressure on their philosophical approach. You know, I, I can't mm-hmm. help but think that in church we take philosophical thinking very for granted. Like, we think philosophically once a week, and we <laughs> think about things like, am I sinning? Who do I trust? Mm-hmm. Is my trust in the living God? How can I improve? How can I find my identity in Christ? We think philosophically right. very often. Yeah. But I've worked in the secular world, and I know that there are many people in our culture who won't think deeply and philosophically for a period of months or even years. They're, they're going to go through life and get mm-hmm. through and do the things that they want to do. Mm-hmm. And so coronavirus has forced people to ask a lot of big questions that they really haven't wanted to ask for a long time. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that's why everybody's protesting. Some people are doing so out of, like what Zach said, a good heart. Mm-hmm. But there are those people who have been cooped up, and they <laughs> feel rage. Um, they hate Trump. Yeah. They don't, they're worried about the election. Yeah. Um, they're also, they've seen video again of somebody getting killed. Mm-hmm. They've seen videos of these things. Yeah, anger. And that has an impact on your soul mm-hmm. to, to watch a person getting killed. Um, and so I think that a lot of it, a lot of it can come from that. Um, that's putting it in the most negative sense, but a lot of the protest also is just an impassioned, uh, built up hmm. probably over years of experiencing uh, difficulty in life and wanting to deal with that now, and this is where it's coming out. Yeah, I think that there's many reasons we can understand it. And, and just, yeah, at first blush, you you can see people are angry, and that makes sense. But for me, I, I think one of the big things is, especially with, with seeing white people that I know getting so involved in the protests and so on, or maybe not even that I know, but I see a lot of white people in protests, uh, it's that I think that there's a, a loss or a death of meaning in our country, in our society. People, there is no meaning to life um, and other than what you make of, of life yeah. and, and make of meeting. Provide that, and yeah. so this has given people something big to give their lives to, something that uh, seems meaningful in a world where meaning is completely foreign. Uh, and so it's important for people to get out there to feel like they're a part of something bigger yeah, yeah. than their than themselves it's, it's a it's a grand movement of history towards you know the right side of history and 
we're making this happen in our own lifetimes and we're going to be taking pictures and a hundred years from now, people are going to be looking back at 2020 mm-hmm. and they're going to be seeing how the world changed. And so there's yeah. a sort of revolutionary spirit, you know, burn things to the ground. We're starting this over from the, from the bottom. Um, well, and you saw that a lot with the climate change movement, which has <laughs> been very quiet and <laughs> yeah. probably replaced with Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah. Um, because same kind of reasons, people need to know they're a part of something bigger than themselves. Yeah, yeah. and so they, they find these things that feel very grand, grandiose yeah. and give them that meaning that they're looking for. And that's an indictment of the church, it really <laughs> is. It, it, it means that the church as not being as active as we should be or as effective as we should be in sharing with people the meaning of life, yeah. that that God created them, God can justify them and sanctify them and call them home into his presence. And yeah. um, we have probably not been as good as we should have been um, in communicating that, and so people are going to fill their lives with other meanings, yeah. like climate change and politics. Yeah, especially and, and young people. I've work. seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they want to give them their lives to something. So our last question is: What are some helpful resources that we would recommend on matters of racial justice from a biblical perspective? And so we have accused the current movement of being too gnostic. <laughs> what would be a way of not being gnostic about that? Oh, man. So I'll start with mine. Um, sure. I think doing things, finding things to do that yeah. are uh, ministries of Fruitful. reconciliation. Yeah. And so personally, I I go to the prison every Wednesday, and part of the reason for that is not just to share the gospel in a general sense, but to expand my disciple-making flock, <laughs> you might say, uh, that I would I want to interact with people from a very different background, often racially different background, socioeconomic background than me. Mm-hmm. And so that is where I go to help to see life restored through the gospel, through the word of God. And so, um, of course, I haven't been able to do that since coronavirus has hit, but I plan to go right back to the prison mm-hmm. as soon as I can and do something um, Zechariah talks about, uh, he criticizes Israel at one point, who despises the day of small things? Hmm. Um, and I think that the Christian should be maybe a little bit less interested in these big things. The election is a big thing, but hmm. and, and we should be interested in that. However, not despise the day of small things where... Uh, I just go and I talk with 40 guys at the prison every week, and it's a small thing, but if 300 million people in our country are doing that small thing, then Hmm. we have life flourishing more and more as people who are wise are helping people who are struggling, um, people with um, good things to say with the Word of God are helping people see the light Hmm. who, who need to hear it. And so... Finding something like that. Another example would be Crossroads Bible Institute. That's letter writing to men who are incarcerated. Hmm. Um, Kids Hope USA is like a Big Brothers uh, program. All right, I know that uh, Barack Obama has this thing called My Brother's Keeper, which is the same kind of thing, an hmm. after-school mentorship program. Um, getting involved with people of other backgrounds, not necessarily people of other backgrounds, but just trying to do something for others yeah. and uh, keeping an eye towards those who are less fortunate um, in the socioeconomic sense is important for the Christian to do. It's a mandate of the gospel. It's part of the gospel to yeah. to do what is good, to do what is holy, to love our neighbor as ourself. And so um, going to a prison, writing letters to a prison, um, getting involved with community initiatives at a, a soup kitchen, a, a food bank, a gospel mission, you're hmm. going to end up impacting lives when you do these things and helping people who are struggling. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and maybe not posting pictures oh all along goodness. the That's way. That's why I hesitated <laughs> to even bring up the prison thing, because it's like, I don't do that. You're I don't right, do right. that just to harp on it. Um, I yeah. do that because God tells me to, and 
and I need to make disciples. So. Yeah, I think that it's common for particularly white people and feeling like, man, I, I, I got to do something. Yeah. And so then it's like, let's go make people my project. You're my yeah. personal project yeah, that, that I'm taking on. That. That's a good point. Um, and so not wanting to, to come in that way. Um, but yeah, not just learning, but actually doing something. That is a really good good uh, direction, good command. And it will require <laughs> sacrifice. It will require, you know, uh, coaching um, a boys and girls club basketball team, right? Like hmm. it will require that you don't get to watch your favorite show, which just so happens to be on that night, which everyone has DVRs and Netflix <laughs> or whatever anyway. So that's less of an excuse than it was 15 years ago. <laughs> but uh, it, it will require some financial uh, sacrifice and emotional sacrifice, uh, sacrifice of energy or of time with your family. And it certainly does require that of me, but um, I've been so blessed. I've made hmm. many, many friends through the prison, and I've learned a lot of about the black experience and Latino hmm. experiences in California, um, experiences, of course, of white people as well. But um, I've learned, I've been blessed, and I think that through it, I've hopefully been a blessing and a part of the solution. Yeah, so what would be then, maybe we can turn to our Gnosticism here and say, what are yeah. some actual resources for learning and yeah. for growing in this? One that I would recommend just right off the top is a pretty new ministry called the Center for Biblical Unity, uh, and it's uh, run by a woman by the name of Monique Dusson. Um, and mm. it's, it's relatively new. It's been going for maybe about six months now. Uh, and she's she's addressing a lot of the issues of critical race theory in particular from a biblical perspective, and she's someone who considers herself to have been someone who was a proponent of critical race theory. Uh, she was a part of the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, I don't know if she was particularly in the organization in any official way, but uh, she was very much an, an, an activist uh, and then uh, has sort of moved out of that and she has a very interesting perspective to offer on all of these things as a black woman herself Mm -hmm. yeah and reading the thoughts of uh, black authors i've heard really good Mm. things about this book reading while black Mm. and have seen an interview with uh, the the pastor who wrote that book and it seems to me from that interview to look like a really solid resource Hmm. Um, Vadi Baukum is a black minister who I certainly appreciate and has a lot of awesome things to say mm-hmm. to the black and white churches. Um, and, you know, mostly though, again, I want to steer a l- away a little bit from Gnosticism and hmm. just say, invite people into your home. Yeah. And yeah. get to awesome. know somebody's experience and do not do it. Do not do so thinking that they're your project. You're going to fix something in their life. There's something that you see that needs to change. But just love your neighbor. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that hopefully will include neighbors who look different and talk different and have different backgrounds than you. I think that's where a lot of this comes. And again, that's a step away from the Gnostic, read a book and your problem is solved. But this is uh, the call to Christian hospitality like the book by Rosaria Butterfield Great is called book. The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Great book. And so um, she writes that book coming out of a um, homosexual background saying Christians need to be more hospitable to people who struggle with same-sex attraction. Hmm. We could say the exact same thing in this racial uh, conversation as well, that if you are making bold pronouncements about Black Lives Matter and um, these protests and you have never talked about these things with a black person, you really need to be careful, I think. Um, Because your tone or maybe even the content of what you're saying is probably uh, not as full or as wide or Mm -hmm. as helpful as it could be um, because you just don't know the experience of uh, another uh, another person, a person who is black, Mm -hmm. regarding these matters. Um, I, I, I'm real. I've really grown in this way personally over the last several years, partially through prison ministry, yeah. um, partially through uh, participation in ministry with um, some of the black people of our church, and hmm. talking about these things from their perspective has really 
uh, I would say, um, softened me and given me more compassion personally towards a lot yeah. of things that they've experienced in their lives. And so I do want to say that as a pastor, speaking often to white people, if we're saying, if we're pontificating and saying very bold, brash statements mm-hmm. that are particularly online, um, that are really ignorant and not from a place of compassion or mercy or care, and we've never talked about these things with any person who is black, then we need to be more careful than that. Yeah, so. never underestimate the power of hospitality yeah. and a posture of hosti- hospitality towards the outsider and of welcome and of care and of love Yeah, and how that will not only change them, but will maybe more importantly change you as well. Yeah, and maybe that's how I would wrap this up is that Christians are motivated by love and compassion mm-hmm. and a desire to understand that slavery happened in our country and it should make us weep that that happened. And segregation happened in our country, and that should make us so sad. Mm. And there is a continuing um, experience of black people feeling marginalized in our country and pushed aside and pushed down. And so hopefully that is the posture that we take um, as Christians um, to listen and to value the truth and to seek f- holistic, good answers that are biblical, but always to do so in love. I think that that Amen. would be maybe my criticism of much of the Marxist-driven um, Gnostic movements that I see are there, not driven by love, but a hunger for power. Hmm. And so yeah. the Christian is not driven by a hunger to hold on to our power or... Uh, to gain get a power back. we don't have, <laughs> yeah. um, but we're we're motivated by compassion uh, because that is the way of Christ. And, and death so, to self. Yeah, so thanks so much for listening to everyone. Thank you, and I hope that you can be gracious towards us in our um, working this out. I really yeah. would love to hear feedback, particularly on this episode. And so um, if you enjoyed it, uh, certainly give us a little review on iTunes. That would be really helpful for spreading the word about the podcast. And um, make sure you like and subscribe and spread the word um, because we want to offer an alternative voice that is thoroughly biblical hmm. and helpful in among the cacophony of other voices that there are concerning this issue. So thanks so much for listening, everyone, and have a great rest of your day. Thanks, guys. Bye.